Before we start the podcast, I just want to say thank you very much to everybody who's been supporting Popular Front. Really appreciate it. It's been going six months now. I started it in March. And to be honest, I thought it might be a flop, but I thought, you know what, let me just try it anyway. And it seems to be going really well. So thanks very much. Everybody keep sharing it, keep telling people about it. And if you have time, please review it on iTunes. That would be really useful. Ta. This is Popular Front, a podcast focused on the very niche and kind of geeky details of modern warfare with me, Jake Hanrahan. Today we're speaking to Gregory Waters. He's going to be talking about the Tiger Forces in Syria. The Tiger Forces are the most popular pro-Assad regime militia. In the areas that they control, they're seen as heroes and to everybody else, they're seen as war criminals. Gregory is going to tell us how the Tiger Forces rose to become such a prominent militia and how they're working alongside the Russian military on the front lines in Syria. To support Popular Front, go to patreon.com slash popularfront and please do subscribe to our YouTube because we're doing docs now too. That's youtube.com slash popularfront. This episode is sponsored by thedefensepost.com. In the context of the Syrian civil war, who are the Tiger Forces? Right, so the Tiger Forces, um, you know, they've evolved over time, but they're really, at their core, it's an air intelligence supported, funded, uh, and run pro-government militia. Um, that air intelligence link has always been there, and it really remains the, the core of who they are. Their, their founder and commander is a, a man called Suhail al-Hassan, started out as a colonel in the Special Operations Department of the air, Syria's Air Intelligence. Um, he's now a brigadier general. Their overall like commander, um, you know, the guy that Suhail reports to directly, is the Major General Jamil al-Hassan, the commander of the entire Air Intelligence Directorate. But the Tiger Forces themselves have been a, a kind of conglomeration of uh, air intelligence special operations fighters, um, minority, like Alawite and Christian volunteers, the remnants of former SAA, which is the Syrian Arab Army, special forces, uh, divisions, and brigades. And in the last couple of years, it's really become this um, amalgamation of local, essentially warlords, strongmen um, from all the Alawite villages in Hama, Homs, Latakia, and Tartus. So it's, it's a pro-government, it's a pro-Assad uh, militia. But how is it different to the others? Because there were quite a lot of pro-Assad militias. You know, you've got the NDF, you've got, um, you know, the SSMP. Why are the Tiger Forces different? Right, so the, the Tiger Forces are different because of this air intelligence uh, origins. Um, the air intelligence, there's, I believe, four intelligent directorates in Syria. You know, like the Mohabarat, right, is what we know known them as. Yeah, that's like the secret police type. Exactly. And the air intelligence is the strongest of all of them. Um, that, that came about under Hafez. Uh, from his origins in the Air Force, um, he kind of brought them into prominence and they became the, the most favored directorate. So they, they've always had the, the most funding, the most support, the most leeway kind of to do what they want. So when the war started, um, Suhail being in charge of the Air Intel's special operations, uh, he was sent around to different protests uh, to put them down, you know, brutally. Um, they did the same thing with the Republican Guard and 4th Division units and the special, the other special uh, special forces divisions from the SAA, right? Because these, these are the core, you know, my, majority Alawite run, 
uh, the core of the military, so they would detach them alongside the, the Sunni conscripts to make sure that they would fire on protesters, they wouldn't defect. Um, so Sahil was sent around to do that. And for 2011 and 2012, that kind of became you know, how he started uh, building these forces and building this reputation for himself as being a, a really ruthless uh, supporter of, of Assad and of, of Damascus. When he moved to Hama in 2012 uh, to deal with the protests there, he started consolidating all of the military units in, in the region uh, around himself, which meant that he, he took control of the air force and uh, that was based on the Hama military uh, air base. And he could, took control of a lot of the 4th Division's ar and SAA artillery units in Hama. Um, and again, this is the, he was able to do this because he had the, the backing and support of the air intelligence, which was the most powerful uh, intelligence unit in the country. Um, so, so what sets him apart is that he has control over not just soldiers on the ground, but over artillery, armor, and air. And really, he's the only person, the only, only commander on the ground in Syria who can call on you know, the Air Force to help him in any offensive. What I don't get here is how are the Tiger Forces a pro-government paramilitary or militia? It just sounds like they are another wing of the military. Right, so the, the what makes them more of a, a paramilitary militia is that they're, they've expanded far beyond their original core of just uh, uh, thrown together SAA, Special Forces, Air Intel units. Um, they're really now especially uh, focused on uh, based around around strongmen. Um, so if we look at the, the structure of the Tiger Forces before 2014, 2015 is, is pretty hard to really nail down. My research has just uh, been on the post-2015 stuff because that's what I've been able to find. And if you look at, at what their structure is now, it's 24 groups. Uh, each one is has a, has a regional focus and they're almost always based around a, a prominent family. Um, so a lot of these groups were founded and continue to be run by like a set of brothers. Uh, so in Tahalak, you have the uh, Cheetahs forces, which were founded by uh, an Alhaji, a, a guy whose last name was Alhaji. Uh, he died, and two, three, two of their three subsequent commanders have all been his brothers. Um, so a lot of you can see that in a lot of a lot of these groups, the Shaheen groups from Masyaf area, they're founded and run by two brothers named Soliman and Yusuf Shaheen. Um, they employed a lot of their other relatives as field commanders within their group. Um, so that that's what makes this more not just a, a government military unit, but the paramilitary aspect comes into it when uh, as as the deaths mounted, right? They they reached out and just kind of consolidated the Alawite militia control throughout the coastal regions. So it's basically a militia made up of warlords and each unit or cell kind of coincides with a different family that, you know, at the head, the warlord controls each unit, right? Exactly. And, and a lot of, to be clear, a lot of the commanders and field commanders historically, like, were employed by the air intelligence. So it's not, you know, th there's, I mean, there's a lot of historical ties to these families. Uh, for, I mean, and that's part of one reason why they're powerful is because, you know, they've for years and decades probably been members of the air intelligence. Right, and you, you say you said they're powerful. How powerful are they? Maybe you can give us an idea. How many, you know, how many fighters do they have? What kind of equipment? Right. So, these are rough estimates based on um, building up from the ground from the ground up. This this unit estimate. So, 
there's 24 groups. Each group has subgroups, um, which appear to be kind of standardized around a platoon size. Between So some of them are about 15 men, which is like a section. Most are in the 30s, low 40s, so it's a, a standard pl- like full-strength platoon. Um, so building from there, if we say that each subgroup is approximately a platoon and how many subgroups each of these groups have, you have a, about two brigades full. Uh, that, that, that's the full strength of the, tiger, of the offensive units of the Tiger Forces. Um, so to break that all down, you have about 4,000 infantry uh, that are like going around for most offensives. But at the same time, you also have flex units uh, from these regions that, that remain at home. So you've got your, you know, maybe you have a, a group that has, like throwing a number out there, 500 fighters. 250 of these guys will go will be on deployment with Suhail and the Tiger Forces permanently, and 250 will be hanging out in North Hama, guarding the front lines there on defensive duty. But they could be called upon if they really if it needed to be. So we'll say the Tiger Forces are 4,000 offensive units. On top of that, they also have uh, artillery and armored units. Um, it's really hard to nail down the size of those. They have at least one artillery regiment. Uh, which is about 45 guns. Some sources from like 2016, 2015 say that put them at three artillery regiments, which is about 130, 120 guns. Um, and the armor unit, I, I have no idea how big it is. It's really hard to find uh, information on that. That's that's a lot of fighters, 4,000. Where are they getting equipment? Where are they getting the weapons from? You know, like you said, okay, they are aligned to the government, but they are actually still a militia. Where are they getting all their equipment? It varies. It's, you know, the... For the more core units, the bigger units, it comes from uh, government funding, air intelligence funding, but a lot of it's personal funding too. So you, a lot of the smaller units, you know, there's like maybe half of them I would say are are several companies to battalion size, but a lot of these are just like a couple platoons thrown together. And these are just local guys. So it's, you know, one one guy from his town, he's got some money. They hired, they, you know, they created a militia probably years ago. And then as they were seeking out, uh, you know, a a strong person to, to back them. They went to the air Intel and the air Intel probably pays their salaries now. Um, so there's that level of affiliation is kind of loose. Um, and we can get more into that later where you see a lot of dual affiliations for these, for these, uh, for these militias, these subgroups and groups. So, Hey, the guy with the kind of ridiculously penciled in, you know, smooth beard, and he's always kind of hanging around with young lads and they, they kind of idolize him. Like, who is he? Why is he so idolized? Uh, well, I mean, yeah, he's the he's the colonel that put down a bunch of the protesters and you know massacred people in Dara and Damascus and Hama. Um, he he's Alawite. He his, his his prominence among the Hama and Holmes Alawite communities really stems from his recruitment of these guys. So uh, it's interesting when you look at these Facebook pages. To a point, he's almost. We look just at that pictures. He's almost more idolized than Assad in some of these communities, just because he's he's, you know, it's a cult of personality around him. He's see, he's seen really, and and this propaganda has just really pushed that he is the only commander in the Syrian side, government side that can uh, that has been able to stop the rebels and and defeat them, uh, which is a debatable point, you know. But uh, yeah, it's just it's just a. Uh, He's a, he's a really good morale booster uh, when he's around. He's such an odd guy. For any listeners, you have to check this guy out. Like, his, all of his pictures look like 
I don't know, like he's in Miami Vice, but in Syria. Like it's so unusual. Like it's just very, I don't know. I can't put my finger on it, but it's very odd. Um, <laughs> all these pictures he's in. Um, and why has he been so? Um, why has he been so useful? You know, why has he been the only uh, commander to put these protesters down? Is it because he's so vicious, so brutal? Yeah. Well, early, you know, 2011, 2012, it, it was, you know, he's a brutal person killing everybody and you have a lot of you know disjointed just literally locals with guns so it's not very impressive when you go put down a, a, a small fsa unit in you know a little town in rural idlib that doesn't mean that you're an elite unit um again it comes back to, to two factors really it's the size of the tiger forces uh four thousand two two full strength brigades with with united logistical units uh is unheard of basically in this war you know the the fact that you can supply, keep supplying and arming four thousand fighters that are semi centralized command structure, is a huge part of his success. But really, what it comes down to is his access to the air air force and artillery. Um, and so before the Russian intervention, he he basically could call on the air force at will. That really really helped in his success in Kanasir in twenty thirteen, I believe it was. Uh, which was, you know, opening up the Aleppo-Hama highway. Um, but then once the Russian intervention occurred in, in, in September 2015, uh, almost immediately the Tiger Forces essentially became the partner force for the Russians. Just as the U.S. uses the SDF in, in the east, uh, the Tiger Forces can be seen in very similar fashion. Ah, uh, how come? Why, why, why do they choose them? It's, I'm not, I don't know why they chose them. Um, I've been talking to some other people about this for a while. It's, it could be that they bought into the propaganda going on at that time, and they said, you know, this guy is really good. He'll be our partner. Um, it could be that they just saw an opportunity here as, you know, this was a, a pretty united force that didn't have a, a foreign backer at the time, right? Because you already had Iran and Hezbollah, you know, they were backing all sorts of different units. So really what what's left to back as, as a, you know, you coming in as a foreign country, the Republican Guard, SAA, Tiger Forces. You kind of, are, you can't really start doing the Republican Guard, so we'll go to the Tiger Forces then. Right, it's like the, the best of a bad bunch for the Russians. Exactly. And, and you see this in the pictures. You, you see Russian commanders, you see Russian Special Forces soldiers, they're pictured from everyone from Suhail all the way down to like random field commanders. Um, the, in the level of integration is pretty sophisticated uh, from what I've seen. Just just from looking at pictures of, of Russians that get pictured alongside Tiger Force fighters. Right, so, so the Tiger Forces and the Russians that are there in Syria pretty much, you know, blending in with each other, hand in hand, similar operations. Exactly. With that in mind, we should probably talk about your work you've been doing on um, the Tiger Forces, because I read your piece the um, about the war crimes of the Tiger Forces. Maybe you can tell us about that. The Tiger Forces are a... They're, they're a majority Alawite with militia, uh, some Christians, some Ismaili Shias, and a couple small Sunni subgroups. Um, so the sectarian nature of, of their fighting is, is very evident. Um, in their posts and, and the things they do. Uh, so in my research, I came across a lot of um, posts that these these fighters or, and commanders, you know, pictures they would post on their personal pages, Facebook pages, of um, themselves with decapitated uh, heads or or executing uh, prisoners. Um, it's a it's a you know the war crimes committed by the by government soldiers are extremely common 
but for some reason far less reported on it seems uh, in the media than war crimes committed by rebel groups i don't know if that's a factor of rebel groups just really not trying to keep it private when they do these things um or what but but yeah so so one of the you know i was really looking at this one group called the cheetahs groups um and a, a pretty a pretty big point in their time during the aleppo offensive uh, and was on at their commander's page the commander who, who later died but Suleiman al-hayak was the commander during the aleppo offensive in 2016 um and he had some pictures of himself uh right at the end of the battle he and a couple other cheetahs guys were standing over for uh, prisoners, and then the next picture so, shows all the prisoners uh, bent over on the ground with some blood on the ground in what appears to have been uh, a field execution. Um, and what's you know part of the research I'm doing is okay, we see this you know that execution happened on this date. A couple weeks before, he's pictured alongside Jamila Hassan, and a couple weeks after, he's pictured alongside Sohaila Hassan. So kind of building in that command structure, um, you know, we, we can say well, if this person committed a war crime. Um, you know how closely tied is are his actions to the to Sahel and Jamil's actions or you know orders. Um. There are photos where they're holding up heads as well, right? Like literally, they're beheaded people. Yeah, that, that's extremely common. It's a threatening thing. Like, yeah, we're not hiding this. You know, this is what we do. Yeah, I think that's just part of the barbarity of this war. Uh, you know, all, all sides are doing this, and and they're all very proud of it. Um, well, I mean, I would say everybody, but you know, yeah, there, there are aspects, there are, there are contingents of all sides that are proud of this and have done this. So, um, I just thought, I think it's, it's important to show that, uh, the people that the international community has essentially decided to back, whether through action or inaction, you know, they we can debate how much, how much they're better or worse than the, uh, the opposition in terms of morals. And there seems to be a real, like, I know we touched on this cult of personality earlier, but maybe we can talk a bit more about this kind of adoration for the Tiger Forces, because I have seen, you know, pro-regime people just absolutely head over heels defending the Tiger Forces, no matter what. Where, where does that come from? Yeah, honestly, I mean, I don't know. You have to get into psychology of, of the pro-regime media people. Uh, I, think, I think part of it is that, you know, they, they, have, they are successful. They're successful on the battlefield. Um, it's misattributed to them being, to Sahel being this amazing commander and them being amazing fighters, when in reality, like I said before, it's it's the size, the cohesion, logistical support, and really the Russian support to them. Um, so that's a big part of it. Uh, it's just it's just a, a morale booster. You know, it's propaganda. We say, you know, Sahel's coming to this front. That means that you know the rebels are going to lose. So if Sahel's moving here in a couple months, the the battle's over. It's just the big, uh, you know, it's really, that's what it comes down to. There's almost like a mysticism around him. Exactly. And it's really strange when we get into, you know, why Suhail? Well, he's he has four pretty important commanders around him, or I call it his officer corps. Um, and from everything I can tell, they do most of the commanding. He, he's got a guy whose who's title is literally military operations commander, uh, and then he has a guy who's in charge of the artillery. Uh, he's an engineering, you know, graduated from the engineer officer school, and, and he's the Tiger's Fire. That's his, his name, his, his, his nickname. Uh, and he, he runs all the artillery operations. So uh, there is definitely a lot of debate about whether or not Suhail is just a figurehead uh, and how much he actually commands or doesn't command anymore.
like we said, because of this kind of adoration he has, it kind of doesn't matter, right? He is the Tiger Forces, the Tiger Forces are him sort of thing. And why are they called the Tiger Forces? Uh, his nickname is the Tiger, so it's, it's his forces. <laughs> oh my gosh. He looks like he's had about 10 facelifts. Like, you know, he's a very odd looking guy. So he, he has. Uh, he he uh, If you look at his stuff in before 2015, he looks like, you know, your regular old Syrian general or commander. But uh, then he got he got wounded pretty badly during the 2015 Idlib offensive. And uh, and afterwards, when he when he came out of that, he definitely had a lot of plastic surgery done to his face. And that's that's why he looks really weird now. Ah, okay. And who are the Tiger Forces working alongside? Because, you know, you mentioned earlier, and I said as well, the NDF are out there. You have, like, Hezbollah running around here, there, and everywhere in Syria on behalf of Assad, SSMP. Um, who are the Tiger Forces working with other than the Russians? So it, it varies, and that, that's where it comes down to this um, these strange dual affiliations that some of the groups have within the Tiger Forces. So you have a, a couple groups um, that are were affiliated with and like held some affiliation still to the Desert Hawks, which was, uh, I don't, if you're familiar with them, they were a, a pretty prominent um, private militia founded by two businessmen from the coast. Uh, and it was the Desert Hawks and the Tiger Forces that in 2013, 14, and 15 were really the, those were the go-to elite government uh Units, um, they fought aside, alongside each other for a long times. A lot of the Tiger Forces units kind of started out in them, in the Desert, Desert Hawks, and then moved over to the Tiger Forces in 2015. Uh, but sometimes they, you would still see them fighting alongside the Desert Hawks in later offensives. You also have uh, groups fighting alongside the 4th Division. So ones I, I found were the Ali Shelly Hawks and the Komet Forces. Both of them, either the commanders came from the 4th Division or they are sometimes referred to as members of the 4th Division still to this day, and they'll fight alongside them. And the 4th the Division being, you know, regime forces, right? Yes, that's, uh, that's the, like, semi-official, semi-detached uh, SAA unit that's run by Maher al-Assad, uh, Bashar's brother, who um, was, is also known for, like, really brutal crackdowns in the early years of the war. Um, it's the main armored division of the SAA. Um, and then, as you mentioned, the SSMP, they actually have... Uh, at least two groups that have they have subgroups that claim affiliations to the SSNP. So they'll say, we are SSN, SSNP fighters, but we're also Tiger Force fighters. Um, and they'll fight alongside other SSNP fighters in certain battlefields, uh, which is really interesting. Um, I'm not sure like if that means that they're getting paid by both, or if it's just that they were SSNP and then they started getting paid by air intel. I, I, like the the depth of these affiliations is not clear to me, but it's just you know. So they kind of work with anybody really who's in their vicinity. Yeah, and when they go out, you know, when it, you have these massive offensives where a lot of units are are cobbled together, uh, you know, they'll be fighting alongside other, whether it's SAA or Hezbollah. I, there's one group that's fought alongside Hezbollah a couple times, um, which is interesting. They they don't go with the main Tiger Forces units. They just they like when the Tiger Forces were up in East Aleppo and Raqqa. This group was in uh, eastern Damascus fighting with Hezbollah in the desert against ISIS. Uh, same thing, they were fighting with Hezbollah in, in Suweda over the last, last month instead of being deployed up to Idlib. Right, why is that? Because they, you know, they're pretty well armed, they're a big unit, you know, they've got a lot of adoration. Why would they be fighting in these kind of backwater areas instead of the main battles? I think that just comes down to the decentralized aspect of it. You, you have that core that's going to go with Suhail, but you also have these other 
semi-official, maybe semi-not-official groups that for whatever reason they were told to go to this place by somebody else or uh, they chose to go there. Um, It's it's not clear why, but it indicates that there's a a level of decentralization here. Well, maybe, maybe we can talk a little bit more about the connection between the Tiger forces and the command structure within the regime because, you know, we know who's running things on the ground, you know, so hail with the, the command structure. But there's got to be... Um, there's got to be a lot of um, back and forth between the government and the Tiger forces. There must be some kind of control that the government has on them. Yeah, I think that control almost definitely certainly comes through uh, Major General Jamil al-Hassan, right, the, the commander of the entire Air Intelligence Directorate. Um, I think a lot of it came through him, but I also think a lot, since the Russian intervention, it's it's really, it's, it's Russian com- generals who are kind of running the planning now for any, any major offensive, uh, which for the most part, Tiger forces will only be involved in major offensives, um, again, because that's where the Russians are going. Uh, so I think uh, you've got some coming down through Jamil Hassan, uh, but a lot of it is being coordinated by the Russian generals. But you also have a, a former SAA general, uh, brigadier general, who's one of the core officers in the Tiger forces. Um, I, I'm trying to remember what division he came from. It was one of the Damascus divisions, um, but he's referred to as the mil- military liaison. So I think a lot of what a lot of the coordination that happened earlier in the war kind of came through his end as well um it's it seems like what he was doing was more you know he understood the SAA structure and he was familiar with all of the a lot of the SAA commanders and so he would help coordinate offensives with the uh SAA um you know units that were do, being deployed there as well so it kind of it comes from every direction really but I, I think that you could say that if you wanted to sum it up with one group right now it's the Russian command sent, uh structure that's kind of running where they go and what happens like even 2016 Aleppo uh, I was looking at all the pictures of, of the commanders from different units that were meeting with each other during the offensive only only two guys were pictured meeting with the uh, Russian general in charge of the offensive that I found um, and that was the Z- Zayad Saleh who was is a deputy commander of the entire Republican Guard and was placed in, ch- in command of the entire Aleppo uh, operation and Suhail those are the only two guys who got, who got to meet with him, both at the same time. So, um, yeah, it's definitely... He, I mean, like I said, the Russian integration into Tiger Force is, is very, very strong, um, especially at the command level. What kind of people are joining the Tiger Forces? Like, how does a young lad in Syria join the Tiger Forces? It's not as simple as just, you know, oh, I'm in the village, I've got a gun, I want to be a part of it. They're a lot more controlled than that, right? I think it used to be more controlled than that. It definitely appears now that it's it's pretty much just my village fights for the Tiger Force, it's, it's, and, and especially in the Hama and Holmes villages and towns, like these entire your men basically only fight for the Tiger Forces at this point. Um, and the reason I say this is because it, it, I don't know if you saw my other article on child fighters, I'll, like the the age of Tiger Force soldiers is incredibly low uh, most of them appear to be in their teens whether that's under 18 or above 18 they're all very very young these is not like um you know i think a common thing that's said is oh so hale goes to all these special forces training camps and re- he, he personally picks the best fighters to join the tiger forces that's absolutely not true um you know, may- maybe he pulls some from there but a lot of these guys are just kids being 
recruited from their homes because you know they need they need money and there's no jobs i do remember actually i've seen i, I didn't see that article about the um about the uh, the child soldiers but i have seen photos of like martyrs you know like young lads that have died um within the tiger forces and they're like oh this guy is 19 it's like no <laughs> that guy is not 19 you know what i mean um yeah so so maybe you can talk about that why why are young kids being being joined up to the tiger forces i mean it's it's why why does anyone in syria join up they, they there's there's no economy there's no there's no jobs uh you know fighting fighting is is the source of income for a lot of these families like whether it's whether you're talking about opposition families or government families uh fighting is the one way for them to make money um so you know it's a combination of well we need money and when you get to some like the northern hama front line uh well there is more maybe an existential issue of um my my town's on the front lines with the with the rebels, and so I need to join up to defend my town. And and when you when you go look to where to join up, well, everyone in my town fights for the air or for the air intel and for the tiger forces. The you know the most prominent family in my town they they run a a, a group within the air intel, so I'll, I'll just join them. Right, and how how much money they're getting paid? Do you know? I have no idea, unfortunately. Okay, do you think it's a lot? It would definitely be on the higher end of uh, what what fighters get paid in Syria, I'd imagine. Right, it's going to be more than, like, rebels, I imagine, because I can't imagine they've got much money left. Yeah, yeah. How are you tracking the goings-on of the Tiger Forces? Because I know you keep referring to, like, their Facebook pages, and I've certainly seen a lot of, I don't know, the Tiger Forces guys seem to be very social media savvy. They seem to be very vain, you know, in, in one way. Is that the main way you're doing it, through open source? Yep, it's all, it's all through Facebook, um, and it's all just through publicly available Facebook stuff. I don't I don't friend any of them or interact with any of them. Uh, so, the the project started with, with I wanted to see I wanted to map out the unit structure of the Tiger Forces, and I just started searching in Arabic on Facebook the, the different names of the groups that I did know about, and then groups that haven't talked about in English. And then I was just looking for other groups, um, and you'll find you know almost all of them have a, a little have at least one group page on Facebook. Uh, like you know any any sort of group page and it'll be about them and, and they'll post pictures on it post updates on like what their group's doing uh and then you'll find people you'll find the commander's personal facebook pages and a lot of them are very public and they're constantly posting about everything that they're up to and put pictures of where they're at and all the guys they're fighting with and uh then you'll, you'll find lots of fighters who are you know, you'll find posts with like 60 people tagged. Oh, okay, that's the entire subgroup. That That's the platoon right there. <laughs> that, that, you know, it's a picture of like 50 guys and 50 guys are tagged in it. Um, so yeah, it, it's... I've been doing this for uh, the Syrian Arab Army structure, the Republican Guard structure, and now for Tiger Force structure. And the Tiger Forces are by far the most open about everything that they do on Facebook. Do you think that's because they're just, I don't know, they don't care or they're not wise enough to, to kind of keep it under wraps? Or do you think they're kind of, you know, it's kind of trendy. It's the Tiger Forces. It's almost like the in thing. Exactly. It's it, it's so cool to be a, a member of the Tiger Forces. You'll see if any, if a guy was even pictured in like a, the vicinity of Suhail, that's his profile picture. Whether if, Even if it's four years old, that's his profile picture. Um, and he won't change it uh, because he's a Tiger Forces member. You know, it's uh, it's a really weird world we live in. Where I don't know, you, you know, you can just you can just find out all this information purely because 
everybody is kind of involved in this oversharing on social media, even militants, you know, even guys fighting in Syria. Exactly. I mean, it's it's the the positive and this is, you know, negatives of Facebook is that you can find you can do any project you want on Facebook and you'll be able to find the stuff you need. But um, th- it's because it's because they don't they don't really regulate what's on their site. So, like, I mean, just as a side note, my last big project was tracking ISIS fighters on Facebook, and it's incredibly easy to find ISIS supporters. I mean, we, we mapped out a thousand of them uh, from their, in their friends list, and Facebook just does not take this, this stuff down. Yeah, I, I, I'm in a weird kind of opinion about that. I'm different to a lot of people. A lot of people are like, oh, this guy's ISIS, get him down, get him down, and stuff like that. And on Twitter, everybody's reporting each other. I'm... I don't agree with that. I don't see the point because it makes it a lot harder to track. I myself have never once reported anyone ever on any social media platform just because it's like, well, how am I going to keep track of this person? You know, you find this person. Wow. There you go. You know, I was doing uh, some work recently kind of tracking these militant Nazis and there were other people, other reporters were doing it as well and then immediately snitching on them, you know, straight away. And I, I was just like, this is stupid. Now you've just, you, God knows where they've gone. You know, God knows what their new nickname will be. Now you've kind of lost it. So... I don't know. I'm, I'm sure there's a thousand people like laughing my face for saying that, but you know what I mean. Imagine if if um, if all of these pages were taken down, it would make your work, which I think is very important work, it would make it a lot harder. Oh, of course, yeah. I mean, there's, there's, there has to be like a balance between who do you report and who do you not. I mean, I, I was the, the exact same opinion until I did the ISIS re- research, and then I was like, ah, that you know, the law enforcement agencies that are relying on these pages being up and, and f- Facebook trying to use use the publicness of, of these pages and individuals, it's, it's not working. ISIS is, is beating them in this game. That's just my opinion, but I absolutely agree that when it comes to things like Syria uh, and, and, you know, if these if this was all censored, we wouldn't know a single thing. So I definitely uh, support that. It's a fine line. I think I'm oversimplifying it, but there is definitely an argument in, you know, just just be quiet. <laughs> Track it, be quiet, don't report. Um, unless, obviously, unless they're doing some crazy stuff. But, I'm, you know, everything has its own kind of situation. Um, what do you think is next for the Tiger Forces? Do you think we'll see them taking part in the Idlib operation if that, if that you know, goes ahead? Yeah, absolutely. They'll be a part of the Idlib operation. Um, the bulk of their units have already moved up there. Um, so I, I think... I mean, just kind of guessing right now, but the if if this really does go down, where you have the three main axes on in North Hama, uh, Latakia, and Aleppo, we'll mostly see them in the North Hama area since that's where uh, they're really um, the core of their recruitment is. I mean, all, all of those villages along the North Hama border are tiger like heavy tiger force recruitment areas. You'll have like specific groups made from that entirely from that village. Um, so yeah, I think they'll definitely be a part of that. Uh, it'll be interesting, you know, if if Russia does get involved in the offensive or not, how that would affect the Tiger Force's involvement. Um, I could I could definitely see Russia, you know, if Russia says we're not going to support use our air power to support this offensive, if that's the deal they make with Turkey. Um, it'd be interesting to see if they still have people on the ground um, and artillery support for the Tiger Forces since that's been a very common thing. I mean, if you look, look back on East Ghouta East Offensive in, in March, the Russian spokesman for the Russian military in Syria said, uh, like, we will provide whatever air power Suhail needs to support him. I mean, they weren't saying we will we'll support, we'll provide whatever air power for the regime forces, it's for Suhail. So they're, they're addressing him that blatantly, like directly? Yeah. 
yeah, they, they they work through him. He is their partner force. I mean, they so uh, yeah, it's it's a very interesting dynamic for if Russia does back down a little bit from Idlib, what that means uh, for their support to the Tiger forces in Idlib. Is that just because the SSA, you know, the Syrian Arab Army, you know, the regime forces? Is that because they're so decimated and ruined and all over the place? You know, like most of their tanks are wrecked now. Or is it because it's for Syria or the regime to go, oh, nothing to do with us. That was a militia. You know, that wasn't us. That wasn't directly our forces. Or, or do they not even care? No, I, I think it's it's more the, the first one. Um, you know, the SCA, there's no division. There's no there's no divisions left. They're, they're, they're a handful of half-strength half brigades, half-strength battalions. Um, they operate at the, at the brigade level for the most part now. And uh, even when you look at the Republican Guard, which uh, is, a, 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 you know, when it comes to serious, a formidable, formidable fighting force, uh, they, they really, they just operate at the battalion level. They don't operate at the brigade level like they used to. Because we go back to 2011, 2012, and we mentioned that, uh, you know, these, these core loyalist units were split apart to, and attached to conscript SAA units to make sure they didn't defect. So the Republican Guard was split, like, you know, you'd have battalions split off of their brigades and they would be go and sent to a front line attached to some SAA brigade. Uh, those battalions don't have brigade affiliations anymore. Like, when we look at Damascus, there's, I think, seven, to between seven and eleven Republican Guard battalions that have been operating in Damascus for the whole war that I can't find a single, like, reference to their brigade affiliation. They're all basically independent battalions now. So when you're Russia coming into Syria, you know, why would, you can't really, you're not going to back, uh, start working through a disjointed, you know, bunch of battalions when you can just go to the, the uh, semi-centralized Tiger forces. Um, you know, you've got a brigade or two and you can work through them. With that in mind, do you think it's then correct to say that perhaps the Tiger forces are the only kind of cohesive regime force left now? They've basically taken the role of the of the army. Yeah, they, they've taken the offensive role of the army. Yes, um, you know they're not the army. They're not manning, manning the checkpoints everywhere and, and doing uh, you know defensive stuff like the army is to a certain extent. They are in Hama. Uh, they do a lot. I mean, they could basically control all the black market in Hama, but uh, they uh, they're the offensive unit now. Um, but again, that to me, it's really important that the distinction is made that they're not the offensive unit because they're some amazing commanders or amazing fighters. It's because of their size, their, co their, their relative cohesiveness, and the support they both had with the Russians and prior to the Russians, the support they had of the Air Force. That is interesting. It's a weird situation where the militia kind of <laughs> becomes the military, really. Yeah, yeah. And so a lot of people are kind of, you know it's what happens to Sahel once this war is over well that that's what i was going to say what happens to the tiger forces when the war is over because you know it is going to be over i don't know within the next two or three years i i reckon i don't know maybe i'm wrong but you know it seems to be coming to the tail end of it yeah that's that's a great question i mean you know one one place we could look to for an answer is what happened to zahardin uh, Issam zahardin the republican guard you know hero of derazor right as soon as derazor was liberated uh he died in a mysterious landmine accident. So, <laughs> <laughs> of course he did. Well, I was gonna say this is gonna sound like a weird parallel now, and I may be an idiot for saying this, but if you look at the Donbass, you know uh, East Ukraine, you have got the Russian-backed separatists. 
all of their key separatist commanders, Givi, Motorola, and now uh, Alexander Zakachenko, the, the leader of the DNR, have all died in the last two years in very mysterious circumstances. Now, the Russians just say, oh, yeah, it was Ukraine, and it's, it wasn't. You know, I did, I did quite a bit of work, actually. I didn't publish my findings in the end, but, you know, Givi, for definite, was not killed by Ukraine, almost for definite. Even the, the RPO, the, the weapon used was like, you know, proliferated throughout all of the kind of separatist forces in that area. It was just, it was quite obvious what happened. Um, I mean, do you think it's possible that the Russians might just go, okay, you know, those guys are gone now because they've done a lot of work with them and they might want to cover that up in the future? That Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't rule anything off the table. Um, the, the one thing that is, I think, a little different about Suhail is by all accounts, he's not entirely uh, there mentally. Um, if you listen, like if you have like fluent Arabic speakers listen to his speeches, he he's not really coherent in what he says. Ah, uh, in what way? Like he's he's war damaged, or he's just not very clever. Yeah, well, because that, again, that that 2015 wound was you know his, his I think it was a mortar attack, and it was like shrapnel to his face, um, into his head. So, and that that's where you know the question of how much is he really in command here? Is he just a figurehead that when he shows up on the front lines? All the all the fighters are just like, oh, we can do this now. So Hale's here, which is it's a valid, you know, he's a valid moral boost to them. But is the command, is the is the strategy and the command really run by the Russians and his officer corps? I think I think it is more than it isn't. So I, I, it's not clear that he would actually be any sort of threat to Assad or to the Russians or to anybody. Um, he, he could he could instead of being assassinated, just get a nice little retirement. Who knows? A little forced retirement. Yeah, that's that's a good point because you know Givi and Motorola, the the separatist commanders, were very much a threat. You know, they'd even said, I think Motorola said recently before, or like you know just before his death, I think he said something like, you know, if if you guys don't do what we're saying, then I'll, I'll just break away. I'll use my battalion to do whatever. So you know, there's no there's no signs, I guess, of uh, the Tiger forces doing that. Yeah, at least not not from Suhail, I wouldn't say. I mean, and this is all speculation, but. I think uh, absolutely there's going to be issues with how do you demobilize the groups and bring Hama, especially Hama, but also parts of Homs, uh, like the Tal Kalak region of Homs and parts of Latakia and Hartus back under government control when you have just pretty much the entire you know, western half of the Hama government and the northwest of Homs government is just tiger forces. You know, all, like all of the villages there. Um, are, are heavy recruitment pools for major Tiger Force groups. Um, so when the war is over, you know, these guys are still going to want to make money. They have all the arms. They have the connection to the air intel. They can do whatever they want. Uh, how do you demobilize that? And how do you, how do you end basically what's going to become criminal gangs from uh, having free reign in this imp- really important region of the country? Yeah, definitely one to watch out for. Um, Greg, is there anything else you want to say? I think that's great. I think we got it. No, I think, the, yeah, it's just uh, it's a really fascinating group. And um, I'm going to have a report out on it in a, in a week or so, or a couple of weeks, uh, that will have a detailed breakdown of all of the all of the groups and subgroups and where they're from and everything. So, With that being said, um, where can people, you know, where can people see your work? Where can they get hold of you? Uh, so they can see a lot of my work on Twitter, at uh, Gregory P. Waters. And then I also write for uh, the International Review. So that's international-review.org. Um, that's where I've been publishing my Tiger Forces series. Uh, do a lot of like battle analysis on there and, and various articles on um, you know local dynamics in Syria. Almost all based on Facebook, which I think is really interesting. Yeah, it's very interesting. International Review, who runs that again? I, the guy? 
Uh, it's it's a group of us. Um, you know, Marcus, Adam, myself, Trent. So it's a. Uh, yeah, I've been on it a while. It's a really good site. People should definitely check that out. I, I um I forget it was one of your guys. Me and him have like heated political arguments <laughs> quite often in the in the Kurdish chat. But he's a really good lad, and I really like the um I really like the site. What you guys are doing, man? Oh, that's great. I appreciate that. It's a, yeah, it's a really fun project. So hoping that people keep going to it. <laughs> okay, mate. And what is that site? One last time. It's the international review.org. Okay, brilliant. Thank you very much, Greg. Thanks, Jake. Cheers, mate. That was Gregory Waters talking about the Tiger forces of Syria laying waste to the areas they go to and fawning over their leader. This episode was sponsored by thedefensepost.com. Defense with an S. Check them out. It's a really good website. To support Popular Front, to keep us going, to join the community, go to patreon.com slash popularfront. You can get bonus episodes, narrated articles, all sorts of stuff there. Thank you very much to the people already supporting you, helping me keep this going. Thank you very much to the higher tier Patreons. They are Teddy, Aliame Leroy, Emily Molly, Cedar Fenn, Daniel Shearer, Joanne Stocker, Margaret Bowling, Zachary Hinch, Stephen R.D. Henderson, L.H., Joel Tambusi, Cole Gannon, Ryan Sandercock, and Peter McCormack, thank you very much. Like I said, if you want to support Popular Front, go to patreon.com slash popularfront. To keep up to date with Popular Front, follow me on Twitter. That is Jake underscore Hanrahan, H-A-N-R-A-H-A-N. Or follow the Popular Front Twitter. That is at popularfrontco, like the site. To see all the episodes and to do one-time donations or Bitcoin donations, go to popularfront.co. When the Patreon hits a certain goal, I plan to use that money to build a website. Um, So Popular Front will become more than just the podcast and the YouTube and that here and there. It will be kind of a hub, I hope, for independent conflict journalism. We're also on the Instagram now, so follow us there at popular.front. That's the best place to keep up to date with what we're going to be doing soon, which is we're going to be opening a Popular Front shop, selling merchandise. We're going to be doing camouflage, tote bags, t-shirts, stickers, patches, all sorts of stuff. That will be opening within the next month or two, I would say. Music in this episode, the intro was by the synth artist Home, and the outro was by Son of Old. He just told me that he's updated his SoundCloud, so go there to see his latest material. That is soundcloud.com slash sun dash of dash old. Oh, and if anyone is still listening, I really need some help with graphic design. So if there are any graphic designers out there who would volunteer to help us make a few things for Popular Front, please do get in contact with me. Either send me a direct message on Twitter or email me. It's probably better to email me, but it's up to you. Uh, email popularfrontpodcast at gmail.com. Cheers.